As you can see, Junior Church is growing also. In a year or two, it'll explode. <laughs> Our message is but how God giving unity is put at risk. Last week we, we looked in chapter 4 of Acts and we were in verses 32 to 37. In verse 32, they were with one heart and soul. Verse 33, the, the spirit-filled church was, was shown with great power. In verse 33, with great abundance of God's grace was upon them. And today we're going to look at great fear that comes upon the spirit-filled church. Three of the characteristics of the Spirit-filled church that we looked at last week is that there's God-given unity. Unity that's that we think we've generated on our own is no unity at all. The unity that we desire is God's unity that comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. When we are filled with the Spirit, the second characteristic was that we'll have favor with our neighbors. We will be in favor with all people. And the third thing was that the Lord was adding to their numbers. There should be growth. There should be numerical growth. That isn't our purpose or our drive, but as a natural result of God's filling in the Holy Spirit, there should be numerical growth. There just should be. Um, if you, you look at the third, first and the third point, God-given unity and the Lord was adding to their number is just a reminder that it's about Him it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God and what His work will do if we obey, if we confess sin in our lives and get out of the way of the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit work. As a result, we found in verse 36 and 37 that a man named Barnabas was very generous, as, as were many in the church. They were generous. He sold property and, and, and put it at the disciples' feet for them to distribute to those that had need. When we're part of a Spirit-filled church, we will have a sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and we will have a sensitivity to one another's needs that we will be able to provide for and take care of each other. That's God's plan. It's the way he set it up. That's the way he wants it. And that's the way it should be if we are a spirit-filled church. And I thank you for that evidence in this church is, is the generosity of our people. We'll talk a little bit more at communion time about that too as far as the benevolent benevolent offering or the deacon's fund, however you, you want to call it. They were voluntarily, the church, the people in the church were voluntarily, willingly, because of love, having a sensitivity to the needs of others and had a spirit of giving and generosity. And we looked at Barnabas was willing to relinquish the property that he had because he cared more about Jesus than he cared about stuff. We all have stuff, but stuff isn't important. 
Jesus is. But we enter chapter 5, starting in verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men arose, covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such or such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out as well. And she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things, as well it should have. First of all, just the the fact that that Luke is sharing this story uh, gives him validity as a historian. He, he, he wasn't afraid to tell the bad with the good. He, he wasn't trying to cover anything up. He wasn't trying to make it look better than it was. And, and what it does is it, it teaches us that in, in any church, it's not all peaches and cream, or as one commentator put it, it's not all romance and righteousness. Sin is ugly. That's all there is to it. It's never pretty. And commentators didn't take it too light on Ananias and Sapphira. Some of the, some of the comments or words they used to describe them, this is from several different ones, but it's kind of funny. You know, everybody, some, some of them tried to do their own alliteration and whatever, but this is just a hodgepodge of several different ones. They call them spiritual posers, praise seekers, liars, greed, Deceivers, full of dishonesty and deceit. Excuse me. They lacked integrity. They were hypocrites. They were covetous idolaters. And God's word directly says that they were Satan's instruments in verse 3 and in verse 9 that they were spirit grievers, that they grieved the Holy Spirit. Do any of us feel like pointing a finger at Ananias and Sapphira? What do they say when you point at somebody else? You got these three pointing right back at you. Now, 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 now those aren't those aren't pretty adjectives. Well, you know that's that's not something that you want put on 
your, in your obituary or your epitaph or engraved on your gravestone or anything like that. This guy was a covetous idolater. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no. No, that's not, that's not what we want to do or be. In verse 2, they kept back some of the price for himself and with his wife's full knowledge. And, and the, the, the idea there is that they agreed to deceive. They agreed together. We call it conspiracy. They conspired to lie to the church. They liked the adoration and the accolades that Barnabas got when he sold his property and brought it all in and, and laid it at the feet of the apostles. They, they liked the strokes that he was getting. It was like, yeah, yeah, we could, we could be like that too. But you know what? Or we're gonna, we, you know, we got to put the kids through college, so we're going to keep a little of this back. But we'll just let them think that we gave it all. Into verse 4. You have not lied to men. You have lied to God. F.F. Bruce says that Ananias is to Acts what Achan is to Joshua. In both narratives, an act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. Do you get that? In both narratives, an act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. Now, Satan will always try to attack from the outside, but if he can get somebody on the inside to do the dirty work, that's even better in his book. To tear down from the inside and be destructive... Oh, that's good stuff for Satan. That's, that's, that's number one in his playbook. Turn in God's words with me, if you would, to Joshua 7. I'm going to take a couple minutes. and I know we went through Joshua a couple years ago, so I expect you to all remember everything we talked about then. <laughs> yeah, I'm laughing too. <laughs> Hopefully we'll remember a little something, all right? Moses has passed from the scene. You know, the exodus has happened. They left Egypt. Moses has passed from the scene. All, all the dudes that were 20 and over when they left are not going to enter into the promised land because of the disbelief of 10 of the 12 spies that went in. Oh yeah, Joshua was one of the two spies that came back with a good report. They've crossed the Jordan. They set up the monuments. Remember the two stacks of stones? They set up as a memorial to help them remember And soon after they crossed the Jordan, they marched to Jericho. And who wins the battle? The Israelites? Nope. God does. That's right. God wins the battle for the Israelites. As they march around, the walls come down. They go in and take it. But if you remember, before before the walls came down, a couple of the spies, they sent some more spies in. Maybe I, th- I think maybe Joshua was a little more picky about the spies he sent into, into Jericho than maybe Moses was. I'm sure Moses had the direction of the Lord and the 12 that he picked, but still 10 of them came back focusing on man, not on God. But they, they, they escaped. The, the spies that went into Jericho were hidden by Rahab the harlot. And if you look in chapter 2, I believe, yeah, chapter 2, 
Verse 8. Now before they lay down, she came up on the roof, and they, she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and the terror of you has fallen on us, and all that the inhabitants of the and all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord now this may guys, this makes me think of Nehemiah six again. See if you figure out how that fits in. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. We heard what your God did. In Nehemiah, the people acknowledged and understood that it was God that was doing the work of rebuilding the wall. And here, the people in Canaan coming into the promised land, the, the, the people, the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. Our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. We know what your God can do. None of our gods can do that. Our little idols that we worship, they, they can't do what your God has done. So therefore, we're afraid of you, and the land is yours. All you got to do, and she doesn't say this, but all they had to do is stay obedient to God and follow his plan and do what he said, and, and it would be theirs. Back to chapter 7. Walls came down. Jericho. Victory. Celebration. They move on to Ai. Ai's just a little place, so we don't have to send a whole army out. Verse 3, don't let all the people go out. Only two or 3,000 men need to go up to Ai. Don't make it out. All the people toil up there, for they are few. Guess what? Ai kicked their tails, killed 36 of the Jewish soldiers. Struck them down on the descent, verse 5, so the hearts of the people, oh, oh, look at that. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Does that sound familiar? Chapter 2, Rahab says, our hearts melted when we heard what your God is doing for you. Now whose hearts are melting? And Why? F.F. Bruce, both narratives and act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. Their hearts melted and they became as water. Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face. He said, oh God, why did you ever bring us over the Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, Rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. How God-given unity is put at risk. When we don't allow ourselves to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Those moments in our lives when we think we know better than God. Those moments when we take God off the throne and put ourselves in His place. Israel has sinned. I know one of the, the Rock Shazak is 
from taken from Joshua 1 9, I believe. I've commanded you be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Rock Shazak. We talked about that. Might have been the chant they chanted as they marched around the walls of Jericho. Even if it was if they were to be quiet, even if it was in their heads. Rock Shazak. Be strong and courageous because our God is with us. Our God will fight this battle for us. But guess what? He doesn't when there's unconfessed sin in our lives. Verse um, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 in there talks about how they they cast the lots and they pulled the tribe out and then they pulled the family, uh, the, the family group. And guess what? Achan's in that group. Achan said to Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. What's interesting here, and I remember the speaker that spoke on this last year pointed out, was that Achan had a lot of time to confess because Joshua said, we'll meet tomorrow morning. So he had that evening. He was given the opportunity in the morning and he never came forward and confessed that there was sin in his life. Had he, perhaps, God would have spared his life. But he didn't confess his sin until he's caught right-handed. He's got his hand in the cookie jar and he tells him where he hid the gold and the silver and the garments in his tent under the... And the guy's going, they find it. Yep, sure enough, just like he said. Day late and a dollar short. Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver, a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, I coveted them and I took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. Ananias and Sapphira coveted the accolades and the the looks and the acceptance of the church. And they thought they would get it by giving some of their land. But obviously their heart was not in the right place. They coveted, they, they coveted the, the blessings that it appeared that Barnabas was receiving and they weren't. They wanted a piece of the action. But their sins, their heart held the sin in. And they thought they could deceive the people, get the accolades and still look good, but keep some back for their kids' college fund or whatever it was they were going to spend it on. An act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. That is what puts God-given unity at risk. We cannot cover our sin. We cannot treat sin lightly and expect God to bless us. In Revelations 2.5, God is talking to the church at Ephesus. And he says to the church, do what you were doing before, not what you were doing now, before you were being obedient. And if you don't go back to doing what you were doing before and being obedient, I'm going to take away your lampstand. I'm going to take away your blessing. You will not have my hand over if you you continue to go in the direction you're going. I will not bless you. We cannot take sin lightly and expect God to bless us. 
George Sweeting in his book, The Act of God, says, take a favorable attitude towards sin, and God must take an unfavorable attitude towards you. No Christian can entertain sin and get away with it. Okay, it's time for Bible drill. Luke two or Luke twelve two. Middle of the sermon, you you know this will get you away just in case you're kind of dozing a little bit. Luke twelve two. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. We can't cover our sins. Numbers 32.23. Numbers 32.23. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord... And be sure your sin will find you out. Now that's not just a saying that the Sunday school teacher or mom and dad used to scare you. <laughs> I did something bad one time. Well, more than once. But on this particular occasion that I'm thinking of, I walked through the door and my mom. She, I, somebody had to have called her. Mm-hmm. God did. She peered right through me and she knew exactly what I had done. <laughs> We're going to look at another verse that says it's a, it's a uh, terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It was a terrifying thing to fall into my mom's hands too, I'll tell you. <laughs> Don't ask me how she knew. She knew. Obviously, God had prompted her. And she always prayed for that, for all eight of us kids, that she would have that sensitivity to know when, when one of her children was messing up. I was in junior high, man. She nailed me to the wall. I had it coming. I deserved it. Yeah, I sinned. <laughs> I did. But that's a real verse that's not just something mom and dad say or Sunday school teachers say or preachers say to scare you. Be sure your sin will find you out. It's that plain, it's that simple, it's that straightforward. Your sin will find you out. And if in nothing else, even if man doesn't find out, God knows and he will remove his blessing from you. That's scarier than my neighbor finding out or one of you. To have God remove his hand of blessing. Everything we have is from him. So if he takes his hand away, that's bad stuff. Not something you want. Matthew 7, 2. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Like I say, that finger pointing, you've got three coming right back at you. That's kind of loosely translated what that verse means. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by the standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Galatians 6-7. I want you to see that it's just, 
It's, it's something consistently throughout the scriptures. It's just not one, one passage. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. You're not going to sow sin and reap blessings. Just like you're not going to plant corn and get carrots. You plant sin, you're going to reap the rewards and the punishment of that sin. That's all there is to it. Pretty straightforward. So we should never sin again, right? We got it figured out. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Somebody said something one time, something about taking God off the throne and putting, I remember hearing that somewhere. Sometimes in our lives we think we know better than God. Yeah. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 30 and 31. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Here you go. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Sometimes I think people quote that and say it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. That's not what the Bible says. It says the living God. Just just to keep that straight there. But remember, we've talked about revenge and vengeance before. Revengeance, or re, excuse me, re, <laughs> revenge is sin. That's what I do. Vengeance is God's. That's for him to do. And that's taken from the seat or the position of a judge. He is a just God. People say, well, how does God let bad things happen to good people? We have to remember he, he is not just a loving God, but he is also a just God. We cannot sin and, in our vernacular, get away with it. We can't cover it up. It doesn't work. Verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 5.5 5. And what happens once that unity is lost, it's put at risk because of our sin. And if it goes so far and continues on, we, we talk about Matthew 18 and church discipline. But in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. When sin becomes who you are and becomes your reputation. Bad stuff happens. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira. And as we move into the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes, we'll take a look at 1 Corinthians 11 and we'll see what happened when people took unworthily of communion of the Lord's Supper. And, and when I was studying this, I was thinking, you know, I, I, I don't want to be so strong-handed with this that, that people get scared. But you know what? We should be terrified. We should be scared if we come to the Lord's table unworthily. It should not be taken lightly. 
I had something written down in my notes here and I haven't come across it while I'm preaching that I've... Hmm. I want to read... Uh, there, I got about seven or eight different commentaries that I read and study that numbers increase lately. Um, but there's, there's always one guy that, that just nails it and hits it on the head. And so I, I, I got to read this. This is from Tony Moreta uh, in the Christ-Centered Exposition Commentary. As a, talking specifically about Ananias and Sapphira, as a consequence of this couple's massive... This is what I was looking for. It's not my notes. It's in what Tony wrote. Okay, here we go. As, as a consequence of this couple's massive offense, judgment fell. It came from God, not Peter. In this scene, Peter simply does what brothers and sisters do. He holds those professing believers accountable. And we know that Ananias and Sapphira were followers. They were believers because they would not, in verse 3, um, they could not lie to the Holy Spirit if they didn't have them, and they wouldn't anger and grieve the Holy Spirit in verse 9 if, if they weren't believers. Um, so, so we believe that they were part of the church and believers. They, they weren't just people walking by that saw something cool going on. The resulting spirit of fear that came upon everyone as well as the unceremonious burial they were given indicate that the people recognized what happened to these two as divine judgment. But wasn't this instantaneous judgment extreme? And this is the whole point of my message. Only if you minimize the offense by minimizing the one against whom the sin was committed. Now you know why I read it. I could come, never come up with something that profound stated so clearly, plainly, and well. Wasn't this instantaneous judgment extreme? Only if you minimize the offense by minimizing the one against whom the sin was committed. God-given unity is put at risk when we minimize God. God had been belittled by the actions of these two, and his church was facing a satanic assault made apparent by their deeds. God takes these things seriously. Paul spoke about God's terrifying judgment as people took the Lord's Supper impurely. We'll get to that in a few minutes. That account wasn't as dramatic as this one, but what happened in that case was real and serious too. The God of all the earth demands respect. So as we consider this passage, we shouldn't think, God would never do that to me. Rather, we need to remember that God is not mocked. Proverbs 1.7 teaches us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't stand in awe of God, you are unwise. Destruction will come eventually. It was pretty quick for Ananias and Sapphira. It was pretty quick for Achan. The people stoned him and his family. Even his children and his animals. I'm, I'm, I'm glad there's godly men that can write it down so, so well. Only if you minimize the offense by minimizing the one against whom the sin was committed. 
God had been belittled by the actions of those two. How often do I belittle him? How often do I minimize who and what he is in his holiness? I'm going to read two verses in closing. Luke 12, 31. But seek ye first his kingdom, and these things shall be added to you. Deuteronomy 10. Verses 12 and 13. We shared these last week. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways and love him, and to serve and love your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. It's not a secret. He tells us very clearly and plainly what he expects of us. Micah 6, 8 also, you can write that down. He very clearly tells us what he expects of us. Don't minimize God and who he is in the church or in your individual lives. God-given unity is put at risk when we choose to sin. And when we sin, the reason we lose that unity is because God's holiness cannot stand sin. The great part is, is that Satan hates it when we exalt Jesus Christ. Satan hates it when we praise his name. So let's go ahead and stand and praise God's name.